0: You are now listening to the GRIO's Black Podcast Network. Black Culture Amplified.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Writing Black. I am your host, Maisha Kai, lifestyle editor here at the GRIO. And this is a very, very special episode for me because unlike all almost all of our other episodes. I got to do this one in person and I got to do it with three incredible writers. I was invited to moderate a panel for the LA Times Book Festival this year and the panel was called Arts and Culture Telling My Own Story. Now that alone should tell you that this is going to be a very special episode, but my three guests were Three incredible people, uh, some of whom you might know as writers, some of whom you might not. In fact, one of those writers was Ty Hunter. Now, if you are a fashion person, you likely know Ty Hunter as the longtime stylist of Destiny's Child and Beyonce. He now is the stylist for Billy Porter. But Ty is also a first-time author, having put out his own memoir, Makeover from Within, Lessons in Hardship, Acceptance, and Self-Discovery, which was published by Chronicle Books. If you follow Ty, you know he's a Texan, like our favorite Queen Bee. And his book is about his journey from a young, confused kid in Austin, Texas, to working with some of the biggest stars in the world and all of the ups and downs that came with that. It's a fascinating story, so much deeper than you might imagine. And he is just an amazing person to talk with. And he joined us on this panel. Alongside him was Clarkesha Kent. Clarkesha Kent is a Nigerian-American writer, culture critic, columnist, and she is now also the author of Fat Off, Fat On, a big bitch manifesto published by Feminist Press. You know, Clarkesha's so interesting, what she's accomplished before the tender age of thirty is amazing in and of itself. But what she reveals in her memoir is such a candid and poignant backstory, and one that I think a lot of people will really relate to. and and hearing her talk about it was just so insightful and inspiring, also inspiring is the book Black Chameleon, Memory, Womanhood, and Myth by Deborah Deep Mouton. If you know Deborah, she's an internationally known writer, director, performer, critic, and the first black poet laureate of Houston, Texas. And Black Chameleon is one of the most fascinating memoirs I've probably ever read. For its format alone, it's, it's told like a book of fables or myths that really center womanhood and blackness and beauty and parenthood. And she wrote it as a way to explain certain aspects of life to her own child. And that's one of the most beautiful things about the narrative. But what was really striking about our collective conversation, which took place on the campus of the University of Southern California, is that each of these authors, you know, finding their way to telling their story. There's challenges, there's a, a lot of craft and process that is revealed, and there's also a cathartic nature to telling your own story. And whether or not you feel that your story is worthy is is one thing, but I think in the end, the takeaway for me was that there's no wrong way to tell your story. So without further ado, let's get into this incredible conversation with Ty, Clarkisha, and Deborah. That brings me to a question that I'm going to direct to all of you, which is that, you know, we all have a story to tell, but having the confidence to tell the story, feeling that the the story is worthy, doesn't always happen. And then the opportunity doesn't always happen. So how did that process start? And how did you really, I guess, get over the imposter syndrome that I think all of us have about knowing that your story was worth telling? You
0: know, just all the obstacles I've been through and the trials and tribulations, it was important for me to let people know you still can do and make it and any, do anything you want to do. And nothing can get in the way of that. And so it was important for me to do this. I first did a book I was on hold and everybody wanted me to do a styling book and I was so against it because even if you follow me on social media, you know that you wouldn't even know that I was a stylist. I feel like my purpose here is to make people feel better and to really motivate them and make them laugh sometimes as you know my yeah. page is crazy I'm so <laughs> crazy play for me
2: <laughs> but, <laughs>
0: but it is important to let people know that you can overcome things so this process actually took about five years because I did like started like a styling book and everybody wanted me to do styling but I wanted to tell my story I wanted people to get to know me because people don't know that side of me they just know me for a being with Destiny's Child and Beyoncé, so it was important. And I'm just happy that I finally got a team that was like, you know, when I tell people what I've been through, they're like, this is a movie, and like, let me get the book out first, (laughs) let people know. (laughs) So it was, you know, I'm just happy because you being my friend didn't know this, and people didn't know, like, even my mom and my church members and all, like, I was just telling them, you know, backstage, like... When you tell your story, you're also telling people's story that's part of your story. So it's like changing names and that whole uncomfortable feeling of just anxiety of like, oh my God, how is my church going to take this How is My family members or my exes. But, you know, it was just important to just bypass all that. I changed names and just I really wanted people to get to know me and just get to know you. I feel that my story really relates you will find something in there that relates to you to just help you get through and i do these tie takeaways at the end of each chapter it's like i went this way but i wouldn't change that because it made me who i am but i also made it a point to give people like a blueprint to, you should probably go this way because I'm, I'm
1: <laughs> <right>. <laughs> it is really inspiring and I would say the same for all of these books you know I know Clarkisha in your book the function of family is similar in the sense of you know you can't tell your story without telling mm-hmm. theirs yeah but it is a difficult story to yes, read so I can only imagine how it was to write it, to relive those moments did you have any trepidation about that or was it oh no we putting it all on here
3: i think so it was a mix of both that's um cool. in terms of but it's one of those things where like you know if you didn't treat me right that's on you so mm-hmm. that that that, and that part was easy like well i'm gonna if i tell it i'm gonna tell it in full obviously but you know it was hard to because it requires a very specific type of vulnerability because i'm essentially letting people into like the dysfunction that i was um a witness of Mm -hmm. so that part was hard but you know since we're these this is the memoir right this is the art form um you can't phone it in you know because people can tell when you didn't bring everything to a memoir like when you just kind of put like what you thought people wanted to read versus like what should actually be in Mm there so i tried to approach it as like honestly as i could too
1: it, and it is honest and it is raw. And again, at times it's difficult to read. It's also really hard to turn away. Yeah. And I do think that your story for so many people will resonate, I think, you know, especially those people who come from families where, out and, it, and this is, I think, not exclusive to black families, but there is definitely that thing with parents who discipline in a way that is punitive. It's damning in many ways. And it can be really devastating. You know, Uh, Deborah, you have a couple of passages in your book that I was also like, that's rough. (laughs) Like there's a whole story in your book. Um, I don't want to spoil it for people, but I do want people to know just how like incredibly uh, told this is one of my favorite of the i don't even know what to call them you call them all parables do you call them chapters how would you refer to them? you know myths let's worry right. okay one of the myths yeah and this also leans into another very specific aspect of blackness and anti-blackness which is colorism is this idea of your half-sister having the black beaten off of her in Mm a very literal sense. It has everything to do with that style of discipline that we're talking about that is well-meaning but can be really devastating. When you're turning something like that, this phrase that we hear all the time as kids, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and also relates very much to skin color, colorism, etc etc being white presenting being black presenting the meaning of that the meaning of community I mean you got a lot done in a few pages there thank you like how do you transform that into the mythological like you know it was so effective to me I think
2: for me it was thinking about how do I take it to the farthest extreme of what it could possibly be you know we say beat the black of you you think violence Mm -hmm. but if beat the black off of you literally means to take the color off of you right and to let you live in a world where your color is no longer a place of you know refuse for you mm-hmm. right uh what does that mean and then i guess back channeling what is the promise then that your mother is giving you in in saying if you continue down this behavior right this is the consequence that's going to come to you mm-hmm. i think that there's many more layers to discipline in the black community specifically than just you got it wrong and we're going to spank you right it's it's deep-seated in enslavement it's deep-seated in kind of this precursor that we're going to get to the punishment before someone who doesn't have the grace that we have to get to it comes behind us you know it's protective it's protective and I think you know you have to be able to see all of that in it not just what people see as violence
1: yeah and it's so nuanced I think that is what makes it so magical as I keep saying because you know it, it could have been a very flat telling but I also think that you so effectively do this thing where um, so much of the Black existence and so much of what we fight against is this alignment with whiteness, right? This need to be accepted in this other way. And what is dealt with in this moment is what it means not to no longer have the home, to no longer have this as your base, this, this identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so effective. Thank you for revisiting that with this? <laughs> Of the many myths. That was one that I was like, <laughs> wow. And we'll be right back with more Writing Black. Okay, and we are back with more Writing Black. There's a lot of intimacy in all of these books. You know, emotional intimacy, sexual intimacy. And again, we get to talk about these layers that are happening with these intersecting identities, including the coming out story you know or the sexual awakening if you will i would say is probably more accurate i see this most clearly illustrated in both of your stories and i know for you obviously it's incredibly complicated not just by the church which often becomes a factor but obviously by the fact that you're also becoming a father at the same time mm-hmm. um do you mind sharing a little bit with us about the process of writing about that when you're trying to obviously be really honest about? how that took place, but also protect those loved ones. It was hard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, like I've talk, talked about, you know, switching people's names up and, and also just, everybody found out about the everything at the same time. I didn't say I'm writing a book. It was just like, boom, book. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: and like, literally like, It was really, really hard and I just like, I was telling them backstage too, that um, of the lovers that I talk about, I hadn't, I've been like avoiding the calls and all that. And he called on Easter and it was like, (laughs) he didn't mention the book. (laughs) So I was like, okay, cool. But no, it was really, really hard. But I, like I said, I was, I did a a speaking in Austin, Texas um, for the, the library there, and all of the people that most of the people that I talk about in my book, church members and all that stuff, they showed up, and everybody was so supportive, and was like, "It's your story, so you know, you just got to go for it, you know, and and just let it be what it is because I, it's, it's all the truth, and it's my it's my story, so. Uh huh.
1: And that's and that's fair. Yeah. Um, Clarkisha, you know, yours is happening in real time it feels like you know because you know at this age some of these events are like within the last five to ten years i assume (laughs) that they happen Mm -hmm. um and it is i think very reflective of on one hand something i'm really envious of is that is that increasing openness about being able to talk about sexuality but there's still it's so fraught yeah it's so you know dramatic in many ways and you also do that you do this thing that I, I you know I really admire I've not mastered it yet myself as a writer you write an actual love scene a couple of them yeah talk about that for us <laughs> <laughs> so
3: this is an art form as far as
1: said, so I want
3: to know <laughs> so I will say um so writing those scenes the the my coming out story which i put in quotations because it's always it's a different ball game for black people Hmm. like we don't have the benefit a lot of times to like roll out the red carpet and do the do the fanfare like we have to really negotiate how we're going to do it depending Mm on um our backgrounds and our families Mm -hmm. so for this the fact that i was a lay bloomer hate that terminology but lay bloomer really kind of helped me kind of get over the initial I would say nervousness or anxiety about putting those experiences out in the open. Mm -hmm. Um, Mainly because, you know, when you're a queer person, but like a queer black person, sex is interesting for us anyway, because we're still trying to navigate on what that means for us, those labels, everything like that. So I really wanted to just kind of be honest about like the messiness of it all but also make it interesting. Like everybody likes a good romance. So I was like, let me just put some in there. Like <laughs> some flavor in there for y'all while y'all here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I wanted it to be, you know, truthful, vulnerable, but also very entertaining too. Cause you know, this is still a memoir. Yeah. You know, that's one of the functions of it too. Like you are telling a story, but you know, People are here for the juicy parts too. So all my life. He put a little in there.
1: Well, you know, what you also do that's so effective, you mean, you, you refer to your rom-com brain quite a bit yeah. in a book, and I love it because I love a rom-com. But, you know, again, in so doing, you are casting yourself, your self-identified black, first-gen, dark skin, fat self, as the heroine in this rom-com, and I was so thrilled to see it because, you know, yeah. that doesn't always happen. No, it doesn't. And that's why I thought it was so, I guess, imperfectly perfect <laughs> in the telling because you position a heroine that we don't see announced. Yeah. So thank you for that, Deborah. Another thing that keeps coming up here in these discussions and I, it's always going to bring me back to you is the faith and spirituality piece because what we're hearing across the board is it's both affirming and inhibiting. Mm-hmm. I think your book probably most clearly deals with it on the surface level from the very beginning. It's, it's you're bringing us into that realm. Yeah. So I think you're the perfect person to talk about using spirituality as a vehicle in, in a narrative. Why that is significant and how you kind of continue to flesh it out. I know you talked a bit about trying to figure out what you believed in. And your first answer was Jesus. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But how did you start to plumb those depths a little bit deeper? And then, of course, start to create your own myths like Because it feels very real. It feels very like. You know, you just open the book of the fairy tales or the myths and the, or the or even parables and here it is.
2: Yeah, I think for me, one, I'm a pastor's kid. I'm the good one. Um, <laughs> just put that out there, but you know, so I think that that's part of it is having been entrenched in that culture for so long mm-hmm. it kind of pours out of you. I think also in thinking about, you know, I have a degree in African American studies and for me in thinking about the south as a kind of motherland mm-hmm. for black people in this country, mm-hmm. then the church has to be part of that motherland, right? Because it was so prevalent in the ways that we structured our culture, yeah. you know, and it moved beyond just a belief system but into something that really ushered our days, right? And so I wanted to find a way to embrace that part of black culture, right? The south of it, also the church of it you know Mm -hmm. and I think the church for us is a space that is spiritual beyond just one kind of religion I think for us you know we have always been a people that have fused many things together Mm -hmm. and have found a way to still make it our authentic selves and so I wanted it to feel like that you know I wanted to by the end of it you feel like you're in a church service in the best kind of way you feel redeemed in some way you feel seen in some way I think the one of the first questions I asked myself in thinking about writing mythology, which was blasphemous from the start, right, was what does a black woman and God have in common? And my answer was to be believed, Mm -hmm. right? And if I'm going to convince you to believe in me as a black woman, as maybe a God, what are the things you need to know about me to get you to a level of faith, right, that you can hear me as honest and true, and so that for me, you know, kind of is a through line to
1: the book and a very resonant line. Yeah. here. <laughs> but I, yes, yes. And I'm going to be borrowing that. <laughs> what I love that. What do yeah. God have in common to be believed because yeah. we often see that we're not, and then so vital. Mm, yes. Say that. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's also the physicality of it all, you know, you're, you're telling a story, but you're telling a story about real people and real bodies. Real experiences, real traumas. all three of you yeah. have an experience of physical trauma that happens in some points within these narratives that changes the whole trajectory of everything. Yeah. Sure. And I can't help but imagine that it's like you know having never ha- having yet to attempt the memoir myself would be affirmative. <laughs> but I can't help but imagine that there's some um, visceral memory there. Of like what happens, you know. Again, like I didn't know you had ever been shot, which is like such a major thing, and for you was such a pivotal thing. Let's talk about that part of it—the physical part of it, the ability. I know for you too, it also manifests in this like reframing of what ability is and yeah. the ability, mm-hmm. especially for you, Clarkisha. I know you write about that a lot, so I, I want to get into that topic a little bit because I think that that's something we don't talk enough about, no, but it's so real to yeah. so many people. Mm-hmm. Oh, so revisiting. Being shot. Being shot, which
0: I was like, no. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm originally from Austin, Texas, and Austin during that time was very black or white, no gray. It was just blacks over here, whites over here. And if you wanted to mingle a little bit, you go to this place called Sixth Street, but it was madness. Mm-hmm. I worked and i used to work in the medical field i used to work on artificial heart valves i used to sit under a microscope and work on artificial heart valves and i made really really good money and my birthday was in five days and we had we had just elevated to like a, a bigger position or something like that so we had a party for us and the party was down the street from the nightclub where all my people be at so i'm like <laughs> i'm gonna do the fun thing good with the work people and then i'm gonna go to the club yeah. so i went and during this time my favorite song was lenny kravitz it ain't over till it's over so So <laughs> <laughs> my company bought, my birthday was in five days, so this party ended up being like a birthday thing too. So they end up giving me a Walkman and the CD, this chose my age, I'll be 51 in August. <laughs> um, but I got the Walkman and the cassette plate, cassette tape of It Ain't Over Till It's Over. So I'm there and then I'm like, let's just go to the, meet the other black guy that was there. It was like, let's just walk down here for a minute and come back up. So in the process, we go down, I see everybody I haven't seen in a while. And I, I literally joked with him. I'm like, I must be about to die tonight because I'm like, think like it was the best time ever. And I didn't even go in the club yet. Like it was in the parking lot and it was like running into people. It was like the energy. Finally, I had to use the restroom. I go to the restroom and the line is too long and BB in the mail is like, okay, I can use the restroom behind the club. And as I go behind the club, these guys showed up with guns and they put them up to my head and they're like, where is it? Um, and they end up shooting me in both of my legs. Um, and it was a process, but I'm as sick as this sound. I'm glad it happened because it it showed me that even being a good person, bullets don't have a face, and you just have to be aware of your surroundings. So this club is known for having fights and shoots, shootouts and stuff like every now and then. So why am I going here? And so it just really made me reevaluate myself and just know that one, be careful, and two, it ain't over till it's over.
1: <laughs> and there was a whole period that you weren't sure if you were going to be able to keep you.
0: Yeah, I had to learn the. Yeah, yeah. I was in a wheelchair, walking, and you know, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was a process.
1: I'm a narrative across this table. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. yeah. Harkisha, yours was interesting to me, your, your incident. You know, you went to college down the street from where I live now in High Park in Chicago, University of Chicago. Shout out. <laughs> but, um, so much of your, your injury, as it were, felt. Again, like part of this assimilation story. Yeah. You know, you're trying to be um a certain size, you're trying to fit into a certain scheme uh-huh. with devastating results. Yeah. You know, and which still affect you today. Am I reading that correctly? Is it, it you know, did it feel like some sort of betrayal of your body? Did it feel yes. like some Okay, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me about tell me about that, like just writing about it and 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 what it looks like to you now versus what it looked like to you then.
3: Yes. So the injury. So I tore my ACL in college, was like the second going into third year of college. Um, and it was particularly devastating at that point because I was, you know, trying to do a thing in college where trying to be super fit, trying to avoid the so-called freshman 15, which. There's another conversation to be had another day but yeah so I went really hard and you know part of that was directed into sports because very competitive sport I have a lot of Aries in my chart so as you know we love sports we love competition I was trying to be my best trying to be number one but also you know trying to keep the weight off because that was also the other motivation too not a great motivation but you know so when I did tear my ACL during that like faithful soccer game. Um, I was very angry because I, I finally thought I was like on the right path technically, but obviously finding out throughout that journey, struggling with trying to you know physically walk again, struggling with also figuring out how to eat because since I was stationary, I was gaining a lot of weight too, and that was messing with my head so it did feel like this huge betrayal because i was like okay i'm doing what i'm supposed to do so why would my body do this to me but then come to find out you know i wasn't doing right by my body which probably led up to the injury so it was a long, tough process but it taught me a lot of things in terms of like returning back because i wasn't actually present in my body for a long time mm-hmm. you know just kind of going through emotions and being on autopilot and not really being kind to her starving her all of these things right but also important lessons she taught me in that in like like physically getting me to sit down and reflect about my life she taught me that you know the whole able body thing is very temporary it's a temporary experience that's why we all collectively fear getting old because we know what happens when we get old so I think that's why it's important now to start that work yeah I think that's all I would say no I, I think that's a lot to say.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's incredibly relatable. You know, Deborah, we were having a conversation before we got up here. You prompted a question that I think is one of the best ones you could ask with a memoir. You know, obviously, none of these people are in old age yet. <laughs> and I hope they all get there. And, you know, telling your story at this stage is, you know, Again, it it speaks to that, like, how do you know you have a story to tell yet? You know, da, 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 da. But also what we don't always think about with the memoir is what doesn't make it to the page. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I would love for each of you, and I'll start with you, Deborah, to share with us that process of like kind of editing yourself down, of, of making sure that your story remains cohesive and... That you're not kind of just throwing everything at the wall because it is, you know, trauma that you need to kind of work out. Yeah, I mean, omission is definitely a place I
2: was intentional about in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I do talk about sexual assault in my book. Mm-hmm. And the one story I'd never tell you is when it actually happened. Because you don't really need to know that, right? Do you, do you really need to see another story of that? I think, especially as Black women, we have seen that on film, on stage, so much. Mm-hmm. Instead, I tell you all the times where it almost happened, mm-hmm. because I feel like it's equally important for you to know not only this time that someone conquered me in some way, but also all the times that I escaped, yeah. right? All the times that I fought it off, that I didn't ask for it, that that just kind of centered around me. And so I think definitely, um, I was thinking through that. There's also, you know, other stories that just didn't fit the arc. of I wanted to go with the book Mm -hmm. and so there's this great story it's not great because of what happened but um, my father's my grandfather's visited by this cult of women who all pray for him in this very creepy way and within a week everyone starts to die in the house the bird dies first the dog dies this is really a thing that happened um and my father my grandfather dies within about a month of that and uh I had this story and it was definitely leaning more horror right because I was like I love horror (laughs) I was like let's do that but when I sat down to try to put the book together, it just didn't do the thing that I needed it to do. Mm-hmm. So I think as you come with the editing eye to the work, it's it is about the individual stories and the individual moments. But it's also about the overall arching, you know, arc of what is the thing I want the audience to leave with. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us have had to do that work of thinking about what
3: makes it in in that way. Yeah. Karkisha, how did it show up for you? For me, it was trying to decide if I should put more scenes about my family or also trying to decide if I wanted to add more to like my separate like romantic journeys. Mm-hmm. And you know, I decided to essentially keep it cute as we would say, cause you don't want to give too much away, mm. you know, cause sometimes you'll mess up the mystique. Sometimes you want to, like you want to bring an audience in, you want to be vulnerable with them, you want it to be intimate, but you don't want to like, again shred the mystique like there should always be some sort of mystery there about the story where it goes Mm -hmm. you know i've said so many times in terms of like modern media right that sometimes we don't know how to end things we don't know how to bring them to close you'll be watching a show that's been on for 50 seasons like no disrespect but at some point we do want (laughs) to you know we want to wind the story down so that's kind of what i was thinking with those particular stories, and then also is my thing too, where like sometimes I don't want to share everything. Sometimes there are some stories they are just for me. Mm-hmm. So I like that.
1: Yeah, I like that a lot, and you are dead on about closure. Yeah. Okay. What did editing and omission look like for you?:
0: Saving lives?
1: <laughs> please explain
0: no it just, just like what the lady said just things just i don't know it was so juicy like this book was so juicy you know it, like take that out i don't even want to give that person that kind of attention right. it's just like some people just don't deserve that type of attention yeah. so you just strip it strip it and put that you know more of you know things that are more important. And that's kind of how it was, just, just saving lives was what I said. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and with, now,
0: if anything goes to film, if you trust me, I will be putting some of this stuff <laughs> in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but for now, <laughs> I can't a few
2: times, I'm waiting to hear about yeah. the deal, okay. <laughs> yes.
0: But yeah, it's, it's not worth it. And you know, I love the fact that some people will grab this book and don't see anything about them.
1: They're not part of your story. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, wow. it's not even worth the memory.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Well, um, I'm a, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to continue with you for a second because I, I I think when we think of memoir, well, at least when I think of memoir, I'll speak for myself. I I do think of something that feels cathartic. <laughs> I have un- come to understand from different writers that's not always the case. Was this a cathartic experience for you, mm-hmm. um, and how?
0: It was because I've never been in therapy, never just, I've always been everybody else's therapist. And so when you finally write things out and relive things, you kind of understand patterns of why things happen the way they do. I truly believe everything happens the way it's supposed to. It was a learning experience simply because like, me and my dad's relationship really didn't get as close as it did to his final days. Both of my parents were diagnosed with cancer at the same time. And my dad, I never left his side, and I learned so much about him. Mm -hmm. And I learned that um, me being a gay man, when all the men in my life treated me special, like my uncles and cousins, like we would play football, they wouldn't tackle me. They'd be like, you scored. You know, they always like treated me a little bit better, and they saw something in me before I saw it in myself. Mm -hmm. I learned so much about my dad, and it, and he took me to Diana Ross concert when I was a kid. My dad is so into sports, and I never paid attention until I started writing the book. I was like, why would this man take me to? Oh, and that is what sparked fashion. That is what sparked and made me become who I am today. Is Diana Ross, and so, you know, when you finally lay things out, you kind of understand why things happened the way they did. So that that was my therapy. This whole book, and you know, I'm a little shaky because you know it is touching
1: it is touching I'm yeah. like, that is a gorgeous answer
3: and Takeisha how was it cathartic for you Bruh, um I really spelled it out it's like when I also um, processed by writing um so there were a lot of sentiments and feelings about my initial upbringing my childhood that were, kind of resolved for me Mm -hmm. because one of the things like i don't talk to any of my family anymore i went no contact with all of them which more of us should do just to let y'all know so you know there are things i couldn't talk to them about anymore because i don't you know i don't talk to them period so having it written out on paper in the book was just phenomenal in terms of like finally making those connections as to like ty said why this happened mm-hmm. how this happened and why it had to happen like this because sometimes we don't like that and there are some things that happened to me that i wish didn't but then day, i know that they kind of had to happen to get me to where i am now so yeah it was very cathartic in that sense like just making connections that i couldn't make all those years ago Mm. and kind of making my life make sense now,
1: too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that idea of, like, Mm -hmm. making things make sense. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for our writer at the end here, Deborah, who has crapped an entire mythology about it, how did um, this kind of, like close those circles for you I mean I definitely had a lot of pieces that I hadn't talked to people in my family
2: about and then those open doors in the same ways or I I wrestle with things but one of the biggest kind of surprise moments of catharsis for me was in crafting mythology one of the myths is centered on my my daughter at six years old comes to me and and she's freaking out and I'm like what's wrong she's like I don't have a thigh gap like why at six do you care <laughs> I'm like, oh, why is that but but that's right the world she lives in and how she sees the world around her and to be able to craft a myth that explains to her like your knees kiss because somewhere in your past you know there was a village of alligators and the only way to get away from them was to sway your hips in a way that hypnotized everyone right and like baby your body is built off survival right like there's everything in you is right and to see her see that as like utter truth right there's no other option in her mind and to know that that's the kind of work that I'm writing is one that lets young girls lets women now see themselves in a way that reclaims something that closes the gaps for them as much as there's parts of it that are for me I think that that community part is probably the part that I'm the most proud of and the part that resonates in me you know going
1: forward I love that answer and I loved (laughs) all three of these books and we could really sit and talk about them all day, but I also want to give you all a chance to ask questions of all three of these writers because there's so much to dig into here. Also, again, I want to thank the LA Times for taping this session, so it will be available also on the Rio Podcast Network. Sure. Got to put that in there. <laughs> but
4: are there any questions? I'm going to start right here in the middle. <laughs> and, um, I have two questions. The first one I'm going to direct to Deborah. Um, I've read a lot of autobiographies, and yet in reading yours, it was reading more lyrical, mm-hmm. very poetic. It was a very different style of writing than I've ever read before, and it was so much fun to read because I'm not, this happened first, this, happened. I like the whole lyricism. Did you do it naturally or was it very, very, very intentional? Uh, sure. I will say intentional to make myself sound better. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The reality
2: is I'm a poet and that's never going to change. I've tried to stop being a poet and then it's like the trees moved with such, and I'm like, ah, here it goes again. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) so I think that everything I write just has a certain lyricism to it. And I, I've kind of started to learn how to embrace that as, as my brand, as my style, instead of fighting against it and trying to be something else. Yeah.
4: Okay. My second question, and let's, you want someone? <laughs> no, no, no. You got. Uh, you got the mic. <laughs> uh, anyway, my second question is: I'm a writer, and I will never write my autobiography because it means ripping off the scabs and showing everyone your scars, the pain. What was your turning point when you realized you would have to do this? It would be an incredibly painful experience. And yet you had to work through it. What was a motivation, an intention, a goal to do it in to do it, period. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, we started this and last time, Deborah. I'm gonna start with you, and we'll work our way back. Sure. Uh, I've
2: spent most of my career as a performance poet, AKA an oversharer, um, and, and so getting on stage and sharing all of my business has been something I've done for over a decade. I wouldn't call this painful. You know, I think that there was actually a visibility that was that was quite enjoyable in writing the book of knowing that I would be able to like not have to hold the secrets anymore, mm-hmm. but that I could put them down and literally put them down and walk away from them. And it didn't mean that they didn't exist anymore. It just meant that I didn't have to carry them. And so I think that there is an unburdening that comes with autobiography and with writing memoir. That if if the, seen through that lens, there there's a freedom in it that's much less a burden.
1: Yeah. You might have just convinced me to go. Come on
2: now, nice let's <laughs> go, <Karkisha.
3: laughs> Well, um, similar to Deborah, I have like done like public work in that I've written countless articles about like snippets of my life and sometimes the traumatic points. Um, but yeah, I definitely did have like a shit hits the fan moment when talking about my family because I also had to talk about a particular sibling relationship yeah. that was painful. Um, That I hadn't talked about at length in my other work So once I kind of got on that subject, I was like, okay, this is definitely the point where like I Could say fuck it and not talk about this or I could be honest and talk about it mostly because um, Once again when you're queer and you're black um, our relationships with our families are so complex so I thought about that, and I was like, well, I can't phone it in, even if I want to, um, because that was a very intrinsic part of my story. Like, I really had to think about that. Like, do I want to half-ass my story? Do I want to have holes in it, or do I want to tell something that's, for one, complete? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I really had to, like, punch my pride in the face a lot Mm -hmm. while writing this book, Um, and I think it was a good exercise. I feel like more of us should undergo some eco deaths. It's yes. necessary. I feel like if more people did that, my, our world might not look as crazy right now. If
1: that's not an endorsement, I don't know what it is. Uh, <laughs> Again, I'm feeling encouraged. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I've always been transparent. I would definitely say my anxiety w- during this book was basically trying to save other people and like worry about other people because I'm that kind of guy. But I had to like bite the bullet and just say, go. And you know, once you turn 50, you just, this tongue just do what it do. <laughs> <laughs> and so you don't care um but yet yeah, it's it's very freeing i feel very light mm-hmm. once i did the anxiety was like the first three days of the release date because of the people that i do talk about but being that i changed their names they know who they are so like you get a call and say like, so i'm such and such yes you are
4: <laughs>
0: but yeah it, it's it's a freeing experience and you feel lighter and um yeah, I'm glad I did it. i wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing.
1: I love it. Next question. Yes.
0: My question weighs to <laughs> naming people. And so how do you weigh the balance of like changing someone's name when you're writing something like nonfiction and like actually including their name?
1: It is loaded.
0: Well like i said (laughs) they know who they are (laughs) but you know when you tell your story you're telling the story of other people as well so it's like if you're not going to communicate with that person then it's important to like for their privacy and i mean people do the math and add it up to but You just got to go for it and that's what I did and just I've been blessed because there was no backlash or anything like that and each person that I did talk about I was able to communicate with um, and they were like "Well, it is your story and it's the truth and so I was blessed that I didn't have any bad karma with mine as of yet. You know, when things get bigger, things tend to do a remix. That's but true. We'll stand great up. <laughs> I thought you were actually quite graceful I would. a lot of people. Like, Until you know. it's time to do a film, I'm going in. I'll point
4: that yep.
1: <laughs> Okay, <laughs> it's going to get juicy. Uh, <laughs> you do a lot of this as well, Clarkisha, a lot of pseudonyms. And lots of pseudonyms, so.
3: Yes. so I'm gonna be honest with you a lot of it has to do with legalities you know I'm not trying to get sued I'm not trying I'm too sexy to be sued but anyways uh (laughs) that was that was part of it as a survivor too of lots of abuse you have to be worried about that because even if you are telling your story and you're telling the correct story there might be someone out there that doesn't want you to tell that particular story so you you gotta cover your ass so that's kind of what I was thinking about when I was writing like I'm going to tell the story but I'm going to give myself Enough, I guess, plausible deniabilities so that if this person decides to come out, that's on you because no one actually knew who you were. You then identify yourself. So it's one of those things where, like, I kind of wanted to create a catch twenty two situation for that person. Yeah. So that's kind of how I thought it. Like, first protect myself, but also in the event that you do decide to come out, that's your cross to bear. Cross to bear. Excuse me.
1: Now you were obviously writing mythology,
3: <laughs> <laughs> mythology. Mm-hmm. but. How did you handle the
1: situation? Yeah, I thought about it. If I
2: was going to honor you, I was going to name your name. Oh, okay. You know, and if I wasn't, then I changed your name. Right? That's so, so I left actually a lot of original names. Um, and then I took some people who I wanted to dishonor, and I made them a god and another name that was just a villain. Right? And was like, ha-ha, oh, you're over there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's your name. It's over there. And so I think, you know, being able to bend that line, I also decided to do things like incorporate other names because I was able to create characters, right? So I created a character named Akarema. If anybody studies sociology, it's just America backwards, right? Uh, And America is the god of doubts because why wouldn't it be? Oh, it does make us doubt ourselves. And so thinking about things like that, of how do I bring in redlining? How do I bring in America? You know, these other things kind
1: of tied into how I use names within the book. All right. There is a question right down here from a special little person. We love this question. I know. Already we love the question.
3: What inspired you to write a book about your life? Akisha, why don't you get us started? So, initially, I actually didn't. The book came about because of my agent. Shout out to Claire Draper of the Band Agency. I initially wanted to write a Western, which is still in the works. <laughs> still in the works. Um, <laughs> I love this. But, you know, I was talking to them, and you know, Westerns are niche, right? And, you know, I'm a new writer. So they're, they're like, I like that idea, but consider this. And they were like, why don't you do a memoir? I didn't think, like you stated earlier, I didn't think I was old enough. I was like, I'm not even 30 yet. But sometimes it takes somebody else close to you in your circle to let you know that you do actually have a story to tell, mm. like uh, a lot of stories to tell, actually. So they're like, you know, I've watched your last couple of years, like you've given us a lot, and I feel like it's time to really, like, put it together. So after that, I was like, okay, let's do it. So that's kind of how it came to be. And aren't we glad it did? Yeah, Deborah, back to you.
2: Yeah, I've been writing about my life for a long time. So it was just about thinking about if I wanted to put it in a book or not. I think I could have done a lot of things. I could have made a stage play. I could have written an opera. I could have done it
1: in a lot of different forms. She's done all these
2: things. (laughs) But um, a book felt like it was something that could live on beyond me in a different way where it could live with people and people could live with it. You know, the beauty about a book is you don't have to buy a ticket a million times to read it over and over again. Mm -hmm. You bought it once and it lives with you. And so I wanted my story to be able to live with people like that. That's my favorite thing about books. Yeah,
0: it just felt like time it just you know i was doing covid i was facetiming friends and just wasting days and it's like okay let me be productive and do something and i've always wanted to tell my story they wanted me to do a styling book but once i started telling people my story it was like this should be a movie this should be a book and so that's kind of how it happened during COVID. and i'm just glad i completed it i never had author in my to-do list but you know, like I said, when you when like the she was saying, like you communicate your life sometimes to people and they're like, this should be a book. And it just felt like the timing was right.
1: Do you all take the time to congratulate yourselves for this incredible feat and how you make people feel and how all of us, even some people who haven't read these books yet, feel like they are relating to you? No. no, Deborah.
2: No, <laughs> I, I want to be honest with you. No, I suck at it. <laughs> you know, my husband will tell you, like, I, I'm just like, next thing. Right. And I need to be better at it. So I'm I'm just not going to lie. No, I don't. And I, I should be better. And you're reminding me to be better. So thank you.
3: Like Keisha. Same way. I when once, you know, I accomplish one goal, I'm like, OK, what's next? So I really haven't sunken in yet. Like because my book came out on March, March 7th. So I keep forgetting that's when it happened. It's very recent. I should do that more, but I don't. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I would have to say I felt it when I started doing it because of Beyonce wrote the foreword mm-hmm. and so she gave me flowers. Mm-hmm. Billy Porter wrote the afterward. He gave me flowers and on the back of the book I had contacted people that I admire and loved and they all wrote from Tina Knowles to Michelle Williams, Kelly Rowland, Rosario Dawson, mm-hmm. Billy Porter, Jennifer Hudson, Tashina Orner, Kelly Osborne and Naomi Campbell all gave me flowers so it was like just the overall this whole process has been uplifting Mm -hmm. and I pat myself on the back all the time. Good, I
4: love that.
1: Well, if you won't congratulate yourselves, I would love to congratulate you. I'm sure that our audience would love to congratulate you on the incredible feat of telling your own story. We want to thank the LA Times Book Festival, the crew, the volunteers, our engineer back there who's taping this, all of you who attended, thank you so much. Please get into these books, guys. Hold your books up, please, so that people know. There. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we've got Black Chameleon by Deborah Muton, Deborah Deep Muton, excuse me. Uh, Fat On, Fat Off by Kharkisha Kent, and Makeover from Within by Ty Hunter. I'm Maisha Kai. You can find me at The Griot. Thank you guys so much for having us. And we'll be right back with more Writing Black. Okay, and we are back with more Writing Black. Now, of course, in the context of that incredible conversation, my favorites this week might be a little bit obvious. I highly recommend Makeover from Within, Fat On, Fat Off, and Black Chameleon. However, one of the things that fascinated me so much about this conversation was the different forms a memoir can take, like how creative we can get in telling our own stories. And so another one that I would recommend that I just think is so incredible is the book Dear Sendarin. This is a book by uh, Nigerian author Akwaeke um who is a non-binary author. I think I've probably mentioned them before. Um, this particular work is so searing, so personal, so um, staggering. You know, I, I found myself so deeply moved reading this work, this journey through gender and writing and family and money and love and loss. And I think when we talk about memoirs, there is this excavating that has to happen, this peeling back of layers that happens when you are revealing yourself to the world. And, and what Aquaque does, does here is really just uh, tremendous. So I highly recommend Dear Sandharan, if you have a chance to pick that up and obviously also our three authors featured today. And we hope you will join us soon for another episode of Writing Black. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Writing Black. As always, you can find us on the Grio app or wherever you find your podcasts.
0: You are now listening to The Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. The 80s gave us unforgettable songs from Bob Marley, De La Soul, and Public Enemy. I'm
1: a black man, and I can never be a veteran.
0: Being Black the 80s is a podcast docu-series hosted by me, Torre, looking at the most important issues of the 80s through the songs of the decade. i to have hit, the man. A decade when crack kingpins controlled the streets but lost their humanity. You couldn't be like those no soft, smiling, happy go lucky drug And You had to suppress that.